This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Aurelia Skincare, and more specifically, their CBD Super Serum, which contains pure crystallised CBD isolate. Not sure what crystallised CBD isolate is? Well, I'll tell you. It's basically the more sophisticated and far superior version of CBD oil, and essentially means that you get more exact and more effective quantities of CBD without any of the unwanted impurities that sometimes crop up in CBD oil. Aurelia's CBD Super Serum is a really lightweight and fast-absorbing, highly concentrated formula that's suspended in hyaluronic acid, which essentially floods the skin with hydration, while also helping moderate your sebum production and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. Plus, it's got really powerful anti-inflammatory benefits. What's not to love? It's super easy to incorporate into your regular skincare regime. You can just mix a couple of drops in with your favourite moisturiser or serum or facial oil, or you can also use it on its own for a more intense treatment. To get 20% off all Aurelia skincare products, including their CBD Super Serum, head to www.aureliaskincare.com and use the code IGC20 at checkout. That's www.aureliaskincare.com. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otago Uagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm talking to journalist Sarah Jaffe, whose work covers the politics of power, especially within the workplace, and has appeared everywhere from the New York Times and The Atlantic to The Guardian and many, many other publications. Most recently, she's written a deeply compelling new book called Work Won't Love You Back, which seeks to examine what Sarah calls the labour of love myth, the idea that certain work isn't really work per se and should be done out of love or vocational passion, and how that myth is then used to exploit us as workers, allowing work to encroach on almost every part of our lives. It's a fascinating and utterly essential book for anyone interested in the politics of work, especially in light of the coronavirus pandemic, which is already reshaping the workplace in completely unexpected ways. Before I dive into my conversation with Sarah, though, an exciting announcement. As you might know, I myself have a book coming out in a few months' time called We Need to Talk About Money, which is a sort of memoir all about my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say about our wider society when it comes to class, race, privilege, beauty and all sorts of other juicy topics. To mark its publication, I'm teaming up with event organisers Fane for a very special digital event on the evening of 7th of July, where I'll be exploring the complex and pernicious world of money and what I intend to be an incredibly honest and hopefully illuminating discussion of my experiences today. Tickets go on sale today and you can either buy a ticket for just the show or a combined event and book ticket. Obviously, I recommend you do the latter. Why would you not want a copy of my book? And although it's a live streamed event, buying a ticket allows you to watch it back at any point for up to a week after the event itself, just in case you've already got plans for the 7th of July. To book your ticket, head to www.fane.co.uk and I've also put the link in the show notes. Anyway, enough self-promotion for now. Here is my conversation with Sarah Jaffe. I keep joking that I wrote this book to remind myself that I work too much, (laughs) but it's a sort of reported and historical take on how this narrative that we should all love our jobs came to be. I take the 
idea that we should love our jobs, not as a sort of eternal fact, but actually as a relatively recent historical development, and trace that story through the stories of 10 workers who do 10 different kinds of work, and then try to sort of historically situate their conditions, and then show the different ways that they've organized to try to improve those working conditions. Something that I really loved about your book is how skillful it is at showing how this labour of love myth, which is what you call it, um, how that's used to exploit us as workers and, and how it's allowed work to really encroach on, you know, every part of our lives and how the boundaries between work and home have become blurred. And something that I would really like to understand is where did this myth that we're supposed to love our jobs, where did it come from? How has it arisen? Yeah, so I trace it in the book to a few types of work that have always sort of operated in this sort of space where we assume that they're done out of love and not for money. So the first half of the book is based in unpaid work done in the home, which is usually expected to be done by women and done for love and not for money. And then the second half of the book, I look at how the myth of the, you know, sort of creative genius artist has shaped our narratives about creative work. And how we also expect to sort of do that for love of the work itself, and that if we're compensated for it at all, we're sort of lucky to have gotten to do that cool thing for a living. Mm. Something that I thought was really interesting, and you touched on it quite early on in the book, is the fetishization of busyness. So I thought it was really cool how you talk about how working hard and working super long hours is now a badge of honor, particularly for the sort of upper millionaire billionaire, what you call the ownership class, who tend to make a fetish for long hours. And conversely, certainly in the UK, I don't, I'm sure it's probably quite similar in the US, people who don't work are demonised. So here, you know, people talk about benefit scroungers, whereas before being idle is what was seen as the aspirational thing for wealthy people. So where did that come into play? How did that come about? Yeah, it's such an interesting story, right? I was thinking a little bit of Thomas Piketty is sort of use of like Jane Austen narratives to explain the changes in capital and inheritance and and where people's wealth comes from. Because it is really interesting, right? That like, you know, you read Jane Austen and you're like, what do these people do all day? Mm. <laughs> right? I'm just like... They take a turn I'll, about the grounds. They do, right, exactly. <laughs> they, they literally like take a walk and they decide who to marry. And that's what they do. And that, you know, seems great. And, you know, the, the sort of expectation that they will have income from land rents is fascinating to me because I was just like, what? When I first was reading these books and like, you know, I don't think my high school English teachers did a great job of explaining what it means to have like 100 pounds a year or whatever it was they were talking about. So this switch from living off land rents, which certainly there are plenty of wealthy people who are still living off land rents. And then, you know, we also hear a lot about the struggles these days of landlords who, you know, are having problems with their tenants being unable to pay the rent. But we hear much, much more now about this sort of top-level management, right? Like the CEOs and executives, finance, people who work forever and ever and ever. I remember when Marissa Mayer became the chief executive at Yahoo, and she was pregnant, and there was this whole story about how she wasn't going to take maternity leave, and she, like, sleeps under her desk. And I'm just like... This is terrible, right? That was such a damaging narrative. And in hindsight, I can't believe that that was within, I guess, the past decade, because it was very much kind of part and parcel of that whole lean in era. And also the thing that was so damaging about that narrative was that, okay, well, it's fine for you. You're the CEO of Yahoo. You can definitely make that choice if you so wish. But And also there are all sorts of systems I'm sure she could put in place to ensure that 
her going to, you know, she probably had a chauffeur, she probably had a nanny, she probably had a cleaner. Like it's, it's very different from, you know, the average working mother. So something I think is really interesting as well is how far, and I think you kind of allude to this in the book, but how far we've come as a society from, you know, there's that famous quote, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will. And now it's like, you're lucky if you do 10 hours a day for work. And realistically, you know, I've worked in jobs where it's 12, 14 hour days. It's mm-hmm. it's become very much the norm. Yeah. And the pandemic working from home is only sort of expanding that for people, right? Like we've seen studies that show that people are working longer hours because, you know, a variety of reasons. Like it's harder to turn off when, I mean, my desk is literally right next to my bed. You know, I'm recording my bedroom right now. Yeah, yeah. And so, right. So we're literally like sitting here going like, I work right next to my bed. I try to like have a couple hours at the end of the day where I like leave and go into another room of the house, like make dinner, sit on the couch, do something other than like desk to bed. But it's gotten so bad, you know, Dolly Parton rewrote nine to five to be five to nine for a a Super Bowl ad over here. It was was so depressing, right? It was was just like... And like the thing that got to me about that is that the movie 9 to 5, which is one of my favorites, it's brilliant and wonderful and hilarious and just all of those good things. But it was rooted in the real stories of workers who had organized. So like, you know, there was an actual labor organization called 9 to 5 that was organizing women in offices in the like 70s and 80s. I actually was just interviewing one of the sort of leaders of that movement the other day. Her name's Ellen Bravo, and she's still a a really incredible organizer in the U.S. And she was talking about, you know, it was this place where, like, the feminist movement and the labor movement came together. And they had a button that said, my pay, not my consciousness, needs raising. Mm, I like that. Which is, I I mean, I'm I'm actually, you know, I I find consciousness raising a really interesting topic that we could talk about more, but, like, I do think that 9 to 5, the movie and the song, come out of this moment of realization that it's not enough for women to just sort of go into the workplace and then they'll be liberated. But actually, like, once we're in the workplace, those conditions need to be made so that, like, women's lives are recognized. Because before that, you know, the shape of the workplace basically assumed that everybody who was going to work had a wife at home who was doing the rest of it. And like you said, Marissa Mayer, I'm sure Sheryl Sandberg, all the rest of them, you know, their husband isn't doing that work. But they have the equivalent of right, wives. Exactly. You know, it's that Judy, I think Brady, I want a wife, you know, speech. Like it's very much, they are able to pay for right. someone to do the equivalent work and the equivalent labor at home. Right. We're basically hiring wives now. And I write about this in the tech sector chapter of the book, not to jump too far ahead, but I found it really interesting thinking and talking with workers in the tech center and other folks sort of realizing like, oh, these companies that like they cook you meals, they have toys, they have all the stuff in the workplace. They're basically just like designed so the company becomes your wife. Mm. Or the company becomes your family as well. Right, exactly. The joke is the internet of things your mom won't do for you anymore. But, (laughs) right, it's this whole thing that is set up to make sure that, like, your needs are met so that you can just keep working all the time. Yeah, and also I think with so many employers, they frame that as being invested in employee well-being or whatever. But actually they are invested in you you know, in optimizing your ability to work. They're invested in you being able, you know, I think about it, friends of mine who've worked in investment banks. I remember when I was like 21, 22, and we all kind of went into the workplace and some of them are working in, you know, these big corporate companies. And they're like, oh, it's so cool. We have a GP on site and a tailor on site and a post office on site. And I'm like, they do that so that you never have to leave 
the office, those expenses and those costs are chicken change to a big global bank. But it means that from the moment you arrive at seven in the morning to when you leave at midnight, you don't have to leave. And that makes you a more efficient worker. I just wanted to touch very quickly on the pandemic, actually, because you just mentioned it briefly. And again, you write in the book that the global pandemic just made the brutality of the workplace more visible. I'm so intrigued as well, because obviously reading it now, the book's come out, you know, in January 2021, it feels very current and up to date. But I'm wondering what you had to change in the book in terms of your analysis as a result of the pandemic. And I also asked that from the point of view as a writer who also had to change (laughs) big yeah. chunks of her book as a result. I'm like, how did yeah. how did that affect the theories that you put forward or, or did it? So it's interesting. I was in London last February. I was sort of locking down and, and cranking out the last few chapters of the book. And I turned it in on February 28th of Thanks. 2020. <laughs> and right, and flew back to the US and just went straight into lockdown. And so, you know, by the time my editor got me back edits in, I think, April... We didn't actually change that much about sort of the theoretical arguments of the book. Mostly what we found was that the pandemic had just amplified everything I was talking about. So I did go back to the characters that I base each chapter in and interview everybody again and sort of talk about how the pandemic had changed their working conditions, which was really interesting, right? Adela Seeley, who's the nanny that I interview in my chapter about domestic work, had gone from being a day worker where she would, you know, leave her home in the morning and go work during the day and then go back to living with the family that she worked for because her kids were sort of old enough to take care of themselves mostly. But she was dealing with all this stress of like, you know, my kids are now doing homeschooling sort of by themselves and I'm here taking care of this other family, Mm. right? And other people were just working from home. The teachers were all in this tension of like trying to learn how to teach online and also worrying about being pushed back into the classroom too soon, everything had just kind of gotten worse. (laughs) I mean, it's probably too early to say, and this is, you know, the big question, it's probably going to be 5, 10, 15 years before we we really realise, but based on where we are now, you know, recording this at the end of February 2021, what do you think the key ways are that the pandemic is going to change our relationship with our jobs, do you think? And how do you think it's going to change workplace norms? I think the big thing, and this was already a trend, right, that the sort of separation of work and place, as the scholar Aaron Hatton puts it, this was already a trend. I've been a freelancer for most of the last 10 years, but even the times when I had a job, I was still working at home. I was working for sort of small media outlets that didn't have an office where I lived, which was New York at the time. And so the growth of things like WeWork which makes those, you know, do what you love tote bags that I hate so much. But WeWork basically exists and co-working spaces like it exist because workers are already more and more sort of displaced from a workplace. So the moving everybody to working from home, I wonder how many more companies are going to go, oh, we could save a lot on office costs. You know, it probably costs quite a lot of money to have an office in downtown New York or downtown London, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I definitely think I already know of a couple of companies that have, you know, not renewed leases on their offices. And at the same time, you know, I've been working from home for five years. I've been self-employed for five years. And I very much was kind of to my nine to five friends. I was like, come on in. The water's lovely. Like, I love working from home. But yeah. I was surprised that some people don't. Some people miss the office. They miss yeah. That. And also it, it very much is dependent in having enough space 
and essentially probably also having enough money to kind of be able to work at home. So if you're living in a tiny flat share, maybe it doesn't have a communal space already, which is very much the norm in London because, you know, things are so expensive. People give up a living room in order to save costs. To then turn essentially your bedroom or your bedroom and your living room also into your office, I think that is horrendous for a lot of people. And so I do think more people than we think are going to want to return to the office, as well as the people who are very pleased to no longer have to commute. So where does that leave people? Yeah. And where is it going to leave sort of the shape of our cities, I think is a really interesting question, right? I have bookmarked and haven't read yet a report by the think tank Autonomy, the UK think tank, about sort of redesigning cities for working from home, which is going to be really interesting. But I think the the questions of like, what is, is sort of the geography of work going to look like are, are really interesting because they are going to sort of revolve around power, right? Like if your boss decides not to renew the lease on the office space, you're just going to be working from home now. And I guess maybe once we're all vaccinated, we can go back to working from coffee shops, which I really miss doing, frankly. You know, a lot of the time when I have writer's block, I pack my laptop and go change scenery, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Certainly the pandemic was the first time that I realized how precarious freelancing is, if I'm honest. So as soon as lockdown hit last February, March, April, I lost a ton of jobs and a ton of income. Although thankfully, and I'm always really careful to caveat this, I was in a relatively good position financially. So I definitely wasn't impacted in the same way that I know a lot of people have been. But it did kind of scare me for the first time. I was like, wow. Also, I, you know, I suddenly realised, I was like, I make my living doing something that's pretty nebulous and intangible and that isn't an essential. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I am a journalist, writer, you know, media person, which when push comes to shove, I provide things and do things that people can live without. I think for me, the pandemic really brought home the level of precarity in my career. Yeah, it was really striking to me that one of the first things that happened was the website The Outline, which I had written for, friends of mine worked for, just went under. And I was like, the irony of the way that like we're all trapped at home with nothing to do and we're spending more time reading things on the internet than ever before. But yet, because people weren't going anywhere, advertising dollars were dropping and places were just closing or laying people off. And it was terrifying to be like, oh my God, here goes like one place that I could regularly pitch stories and make money and how many more of them are going to drop. Oh yeah, totally. I had a couple of regular, or not regular, but just places that I kind of knew I could reliably pitch to just collapse last year. And I just, I think I was fairly fortunate in that last year, a lot of my work revolved around finishing a book or finishing two books. So actually that I wasn't having to freelance pitch as much, but I know from friends who were very much in the freelance journalism cycles that their rates were being slashed. They were being asked to suddenly work for half as much just because it was a really tough time for magazines. We have no protection as freelancers, which is something that I want to come on to in a moment. Yes. But just before we get to that, something you talk about in the book is the idea that security, like job security, has been traded for fulfillment. And mm -hmm. I think for creative workers like myself and like yourself, there's the idea that you trade all the kind of rights and, you know, employment rights and, yeah, the security that, you know, a nine to five contract provides you with. You trade that in for the privilege of self-actualization, which I'm putting in quotation marks, and, you know, <laughs> doing meaningful work and 
a lot of the workplace conditions you describe in the book are one of extreme exploitation and of emotional labour. On the one hand, they made me really glad that I am self-employed and it reminded me, your book reminded me of what I hated about working in offices. I used to work in advertising, huge amounts of emotional labour there. It reminded me why I became self-employed and reminded me that I saw that as an escape. But I got the impression that you don't necessarily see self-employment as an escape from undesirable workplace dynamics. Well, I think it's a trade-off of different undesirable workplace dynamics, let's say, right? Like, I find I don't have one boss. Instead, I sort of exist with this constant fear of, like, if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, I will just never get hired again at some place, you know? And if some place that I used to reliably pitch stories just stops answering me, you know, you sort of wonder, you start going through like your tweets or something and being like, oh, did I say something? Did I like insult the wrong person? Did I, you know, did I make some comment that somebody found beyond the pale? Like, what is the thing? Because you never know. Whereas, you know, if you have a job and you get fired from your job, I mean, granted in the US, you know, most people are at will employees. We don't really have employment contracts in the same way, but still you have to sort of know why you're being fired. Whereas when you're freelance, you can just Literally, there's nothing stopping someone from just literally never answering my emails again. And there's so little power in that. Yeah. And and it's interesting because I, on the one hand, you know, there's this narrative around self-employment that you are your own boss, which to an extent I am. I work where I want, you know, work from home. I've often worked abroad, you know, pre-pandemic. I, to an extent, I think I am at a point in my career, maybe in the past couple of years, where I have more say over the sort of work I do and don't do and the sorts of people that I work with so to an extent I feel quite free and like I'm my own boss but at the same time as you say I have no rights I have no recourse if my publisher decides not to give me another book deal there is nothing I can do about that yeah and I think that question like you said like the rates being slashed during the pandemic I have a whole series of really bad timings in my life I finished university right in the spring of 2002. So the U.S. was in this massive upheaval over 9-11. Then I finished graduate school in the spring of 2009. We all know what was going on then. (laughs) Yeah, and now I have, it's my second book, thankfully, but coming out, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm just like, ah. And it, it absolutely, like, those things will have lasting effects on my lifetime income, right? Because, like, those have cohort effects, depending on when you get out into the job market. This is something that I've been thinking about for the past couple of years and it came about, my dad once joked, so I think I'd spoken at an event for a brand and, you know, as they do, they give you like this swag, like it was like a branded water bottle and I brought <laughs> it home and my dad was like, oh look, there's your gig economy water bottle and I was like, oh my God, that is like such a brutal takedown. But then I, ever since then, yeah. I've been trying to figure out, am I a part of the gig economy because I think of myself as self-employed and not part of the gig economy only because I think I have a degree of professional capital and because of the type of work I do and it feels disingenuous to describe myself as part of the gig economy in the same way that an Uber driver or delivery courier is but perhaps I am like what's your take on that? I think that the tendency towards freelance is a sort of economy-wide trend that's happening in a lot of different places. And in different sectors, it looks different. So the fact that like more and more, you know, media outlets are relying on freelancers rather than hiring staffers is a part of the same phenomenon that created Uber. 
And it's this narrative of being your own boss is sort of deployed on both of us, right? Like we just had in the US, in California, a big campaign during the election over Proposition 22, which was on the ballot in California, which sort of solidified the legal position of Uber and Lyft drivers as sort of not employees. Oh, that's interesting because we just had a ruling here in the UK that they are. Yes, you guys are doing much better. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> going to be much better to be an Uber driver in the UK than in the US shortly. And the fight about that, the ads that they ran to pass this thing in California were all this stuff about be your own boss. And, you know, California, like a big part of the economy out there is showbiz, which is also a freelance economy, right? And they have some more security because they have unions that have figured out how to operate in that sort of short-term gig by gig thing. But like, if you think about, right, a movie, even a TV show that might last 10 years is still a gig. And at the end of that, you're done. But still that narrative of be your own boss, that worked. And people voted to essentially, you know, lock in the second class status for Uber drivers. And, you know, a lot of it is because this narrative is so pervasive. And so, you know, yes, like you and I have a degree of sort of personal cultural capital that your name, my name sort of means something. And that's a thing that gives us bargaining power in a way that like an individual Uber driver, you know, you might have a five-star rating, but the app can still decide to kick you off for basically, you know, a reason that they never have to give you. And it is a different degree of the same phenomenon, I guess, is what I want to say. And actually what you've just said about you or me kind of having names that count for something kind of brings me quite neatly onto what I wanted to discuss next, which is the idea of personal branding. Because Certainly, I think as, again, particularly within media, as a kind of freelance worker, developing or having a personal brand, whether you openly cultivate it or not, that is increasingly seen as one way to protect yourself from the precarity. And I want to quote something that Naomi Klein, who also gave a brilliant quote for your book, incredibly, I want to quote something that she said in a 2019 interview with The Guardian. It was given to mark the, I think it was the 20 year anniversary of the publication of No Logo. And she said, the biggest change since No Logo came out is that neoliberalism has created so much precarity that the commodification of the self is now seen as the only route to any kind of economic security. When I read that, I felt like my blood run cold. And Mm -hmm. I just remember all of my journalist friends like sharing it with each other because it's both true and something that we would like to push back against. But it's also very much necessary. Like I am aware to different degrees, depending on what I'm doing for work, of the extent to which my personal brand comes into play. And I just wanted to get your take on how that feeds into the theory of your book. Yeah. I mean, thinking about the term personal brand always sort of makes my skin crawl, right? I just like, oh, I hate it. Especially during the pandemic, like Instagram became my favorite social media because it was just the way that I could see what my friends were doing because I can't see them. And it's like, oh, here's your face. I like your face. Um, I miss that face. Here's your dog. Here's your baby. All of that kind of interaction we couldn't have. But also like, especially now that like the book is out, I'm getting all these people following me on Instagram and I'm just kind of like, I try not to actually have this be like book promo and personal branding, but I can't prevent that because it just creeps in and then people expect that of you, you know, not just like people who follow you, but like my publisher expects that of me. People who, you know, have a financial interest in my personal brand now because they have bought my book, they expect that of me. And so it's really hard to turn it off in those places. A quick word from our episode sponsor, Aurelia Skincare. 
I already mentioned that their CBD Super Serum has powerful anti-inflammatory benefits, helps reduce the appearance of wrinkles, and keeps your skin super hydrated. But did you know that it's also odourless, which means it doesn't have the usual scent you sometimes find in CBD products, which is great if you're sensitive to strong smells or just don't love the smell of CBD in general. The reviews for this product are also all raves, to be honest. An example of one that caught my eye on their website is from someone who says that their acne breakouts have basically disappeared and their skin has cleared up immensely since they started using it. Sounds good to me. Do be sure to check out at www.aridaskincare.com and use the code IDC20 at checkout for 20% off all their products. I want to challenge something about the book because obviously the idea of, you know, labour as love being a myth is, you know, very much at, at the core of it. But I want to understand how your theory factors in for people who actually enjoy their jobs. What if you actually love your work? What if you take enjoyment from and feel deeply engaged with and intertwined with your work? And so I think of an example of that as artists or creatives. So I sometimes feel like that about my job. I overall like it. I feel very happy and lucky to do what I do. Obviously, there are times where I want to bang my head against a brick wall. But there are also other times where I really like it. You know, for instance, what I'm doing now, I'm interviewing you. That's work, but I'm happy to do it and I want to do it. And I think that applies to many creatives. So I want to understand how your theory accounts for that. Yeah, I mean, I literally start the book with the words, I love my work, right? Like, I absolutely am aware of this because it is also me, right? Before I finally managed to sort of claw and scratch my way into a semi-successful career as a journalist, as precarious as it may be, I was waiting tables and I hated waiting tables. It was miserable, right? And like waiting tables, you have to do that thing where you have to smile and pretend you're enjoying yourself whether you are or not. Although I think we also have to do that sometimes as journalists. Like, this interview is very pleasant. I am enjoying it. I have had others that I did not enjoy. And either way, I have to sort of have the smile in my voice and be able to just be like, here is me and I'm having a great time, whether or not I'm actually doing so. But the way that this loving your job, the reason that it's called sort of work won't love you back rather than like don't love your job is that reminder that like, you know, whether or not I'm enjoying myself, the boss ultimately doesn't care. Somebody is making money off of me, right? Somebody is making more money off of my book than I am. And that's just a reality. That's not like a dig at my publisher. Like every single publisher who buys someone's book is buying it in order to profit off of it. Advances are basically like a calculated gamble on how much they think they'll make off the book. You know, that's just a reality of work under capitalism. It's not personal. The whole point is that the thing isn't personal. But it ends up justifying terrible working conditions, right? So right now, the New Yorker magazine, which is obviously this, like, very prestigious publication, right? So the workers at the New Yorker unionized and are bargaining, trying to get their first contract. And their negotiations... They are basically being told, well, you work at The New Yorker and you should be grateful to work at The New Yorker. And the fact that they're asking for a base salary of $45,000 a year, which is not a lot of money if one lives in New York City where the average one-bedroom apartment is over $2,000 a month. Mm. And also the amount of student debt you probably have to get the degree that allows you to get the job at The New Yorker. So this fight is not that they don't love their jobs. In fact, like we always see these unions saying like, we love working here, which is why we want it to be better. We want it to be affordable so that we can afford to stay. We want to make these conditions better 
And the response from the boss is sort of like, well, how dare you? You should just be grateful just to work here. Totally. I feel like that's such a common thing within the creative industries and within media. Like I definitely, I used to work at a fairly big media company. And I remember when kind of negotiating my salary, when I was offered the job and I was like, well, you've offered me this, I want that. And I said, the salary you've offered me is just like kind of below like the average. And they were like, okay, but we are company name. And that was kind of the justification, essentially the kudos of working there, which was true. That was like an open secret amongst when I arrived amongst employees. They were like, yeah, you know, you do a couple of years here being underpaid and overworked and then you go off and double your salary elsewhere. That was apparently the kind of gameplay. And to the point that the company had even almost kind of made that explicit. I mean, that was an explicit conversation that somebody said to me and a lot of companies were in jobs that are covetable, which media jobs often are, certainly work in the New Yorker is, they use that prestige and the love that people have for their work and where somebody might feel like writing is a vocation. And they use that to exploit people. Exactly. A couple of people, this is really interesting to me, a couple of uh, talks that I've given about the book or one day on Twitter, people who are librarians brought up this concept of something called vocational awe, which I had never heard it put this way, but it's essentially this, right? It's this idea that you become a librarian. And this was something that they said they had been taught in library science programs, which is great. I'm glad that they talk about this. We should talk about this in more degree programs that, you know, you become a librarian because you really love books and libraries and learning and want to help people with that. And that that's why you become a librarian. And that justifies, again, low pay and lousy working conditions. And that's just such a given now in a way that If you went in to apply for a job at the Ford factory and they said, well, it's Ford, somebody would have laughed and gone down the street to the GM factory, right? Like, because it doesn't matter. But this way that these jobs become seen as sort of goods in themselves is then used to justify all sorts of things that we might not otherwise accept, that I would not have accepted that same response from somebody who was hiring me to wait tables. But- If they're hiring me to do a journalism job that I really want, yeah, it's that thing, right? It's almost like part of your pay is the prestige, you know, Mm -hmm. that tops up your actual, the salary that's, you know, that gets paid into your bank account every month. It's like an invisible prestige payment, but, you know, obviously that doesn't pay the bills. But I actually want to talk a little bit about something sort of about work as family and how the kind of emphasis on working for love or your job being a vocation can be used to exploit workers. So I'm thinking very specifically here in the UK, NHS workers were labelled as heroes during the pandemic by our godforsaken politicians and government who, you know, encouraged us to clap for carers and all of this kind of very symbolic rewards. But, you know, they were encouraging us to kind of label them as heroes when many of these NHS workers, God bless them, they were essentially being forced to work in incredibly dangerous and stressful conditions. And it felt like that was part and parcel of the same thing. I do think to become a doctor or a nurse, there is a level of vocation there, I think, in order to kind of treat people and to treat people when they're sick and make them well again. I think there is an element of just like a very human core element to that that some people have and other people don't have. But I think that was massively exploited in our case. Yeah, absolutely. And I I find it really interesting because I'm from the US. I spend a lot of time in the UK the last few years. And the difference between sort of doctors in the US where our system is highly privatized and where doctors sort of go through like 
basically, you know, eight years of hell in terms of training programs where they bargain down to 80-hour weeks because, like, 100-hour weeks and change are the norm. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be treated by a doctor who's on the tail end of a 100-hour week. No, right. Exactly. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. And in the UK, in the NHS system, doctors are employees of a bigger system. And so their conditions are, are not sort of sold to them with the same thing of like, you go through eight years of hell, and then you get to buy a Mercedes and make $300,000 a year. It's a slightly different thing. But either way, we sort of expect it to be something that you go into because you care about people and you want to help people. And that story, like I, yeah, I've, I've used the clap for the NHS thing in, in so many sort of articles and examples because it is such a really just like literalized version of this thing we're talking about, right? Where like, we clapped for you. So how dare you ask for like a raise or how dare you ask for PPE, right? How dare you ask for like masks that are actually going to prevent you from getting COVID, right? Like I think the nurses wearing bin bags story popped up again yesterday, right? Where you saw like there was such a lack of protective equipment that they're wearing garbage bags. And that's horrifying, right? And that's such a, again, like such a literal visual metaphor of like how we actually treat these people. They're wearing garbage bags. Totally. And, you know, I think it kind of links a little bit to something else that you talk about very much in the kind of first half of the book, which is feminized labor, but not only that, but feminized labor conditions. And I was wondering whether you could explain, you know, as you see it, what role gender plays in our perceptions of worth and productivity as it relates to work, because a big theme of the book is about unpaid domestic labour by women and how that's very much unaccounted for, even though it accounts for a huge amount of our output, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, we're noticing this so much more again during the pandemic, right? Where like people are stuck at home. And so the home is a workplace now, but the home was always a workplace, right? The mountain of dishes that I still need to do attests to that. Um, The things that are not getting done while I'm working, you know, extra long hours right now. So this long, long history of the work that's done in the home sort of being invisibilized and just naturalized is like, well, women are just good at that. They're good at caring for children. They're good at cleaning. They're good at noticing all of the things that need to be done in the home. All of that stuff that has quite a long history. And then, you know, for quite a long time, when women were allowed to go do work for wages outside of the home, it was only sort of acceptable to do work that looked like the work they were already expected to do. So women became nurses, women became teachers, and women worked as shop clerks in stores that catered to women shoppers. And that expectation came along with the fact that, like, the women were, like we said earlier on, right, women were expected to be attached to a man. They were either still living with their father or they should be living with their husband. And therefore, that man does the real work that gets paid. And the woman, if she does some work that gets paid, the pay is sort of secondary. And she's doing it because she really loves children, so she became a teacher in addition to being a mother, right? That natural inclination that women supposedly have, which, like, I certainly don't. I'm terrified of children. I'm really bad (laughs) with them. My niece is, like, old enough now to have conversations with me, and so now I know how to handle it. But, like, when she was a baby, I was just like, what do I do? I'm going to break it. Oh, my God. Um, But this naturalization of this work for women has justified low pay for a really long time and also sort of part-time structure and unreliable jobs. And what's happened as this sort of industrial jobs for men have dropped off 
as countries like the U.S. and the U.K. have deindustrialized, more women are pushed into the workforce and more of the jobs sort of in the whole, you know, set of jobs that exist are these kinds of retail jobs, service jobs, caring jobs. So women are still overwhelmingly in those fields, but also the men in those fields are facing the conditions that normally had been, you know, sort of given to women. So the whole economy gets feminized in a certain way, where there are more part-time jobs that are unstable, that don't provide benefits. In the U.S., they don't provide health insurance, and that you are expected to do that sort of emotional labor that ends up putting you in a sort of subordinate position to both your bosses and the customers. And all of that, one of my big picture takeaways from this in the era of sort of Trump and Brexit is that the appeal of Trump, of Brexit, is in some ways like bringing back that industrial economy, right? That people want those jobs back because the shape of that economy made sense. Mm, It worked for people. It worked for some people. It never worked for everyone, certainly. It was straightforward Um, in a way. Right, but it, it worked for white men, we'll say. Yeah. Right? And so it's not surprising to me that sort of white men want that back and that it comes along with, like, all of this anxiety about gender, right? That there's a, a there's so much anxiety about gender in our politics right now. It's bonkers. And, right, all of this is because, like, the working patterns that generations had gotten used to that were shaped like a man who goes to work and a wife who stays home, that's all been disrupted. It has been disrupted to some degree by feminism, which I would say is good. But it's also just been disrupted by the fact that, like, capital flight has moved the industrial jobs to Bangladesh, and they are not in Manchester anymore. Mm. Now, I found that whole section really interesting just because I think when I think about kind of feminized labor or the way gender plays a role Mm. in the workplace, I often think about it as, okay, so like these sorts of jobs, retail, waitressing, hospitality, they're dominated by women, which is true, but I hadn't factored in how those conditions, very much feminized labor conditions, are kind of seeping out into all areas of the workforce. And I don't think that's something that has really, well, I certainly haven't seen it discussed widely in the mainstream. So I was really grateful for you for doing that in your book. I want to talk about something that can hopefully allow us to finish on a relatively positive note. We will try. We will try. (laughs) Because this is, you know, it can be kind of a slightly depressing topic. Something you talk about in the book is the fact that it's difficult for artists specifically to conceive their problems as collective issues rather than individual ones, which I definitely related to. You know, I very much think of myself as like a business of one or company of one. I work on my own. I occasionally work with other people on projects, but ultimately I work by myself. But a big theme of your book is the power of collective action. So unions and strikes as a potential solution to precarious work conditions, which I love. I occasionally am sometimes asked to consult on stuff about the future of work and people kind of say, oh, where do you think things are going? And I'm like, I really hope unions are coming back. But at the same time, I don't know how a freelancer like me can unionise or take part in collective action, because as I said, I very much operate as an individual. So I'd be intrigued as to how you think I could enforce that or people like me could enforce that in our careers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And some of this is actually like, I'm a bit jealous of the UK's labor laws because you can really? actually, oh you, yeah, the, US, no, the US must the US be a nightmare. A, <laughs> the US is a nightmare. I, yeah. The US is definitely a nightmare. And like, you know, the Brexit shakeout and whether, you know, you stay in European rules is going to be another thing. But you can just join a union in the UK in a way like I can't, well, I can 
join an organization and sign up to pay dues to it. But it doesn't actually require sort of recognition in the same way that like, if I was in the UK, I could join the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, and be a member and therefore like have access to some resources. It's still hard for freelancers to like, what would a freelance strike look like? It would be very easy for people to break that, right? And this is where I've talked to folks about this. I mentioned earlier the sort of model of the Hollywood unions, right? Interestingly, I read a story the other day about how SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors union in the Screen Actors Guild, is now accepting influencers. So if you are, yeah, right? It was such an interesting story. Like if you are a person who has an Instagram or a YouTube or whatever, as long as you're doing it through video because it's the Screen Actors Guild and it would be different for sort of still whatever. But if you're doing promo videos that you are getting paid for as an influencer, you can join the union and that gives you access to the union's benefits and also the union's sort of dispute resolution and work rules. And so I'm constantly like, okay, how do we think about this? And there is like a freelancer solidarity project that folks have been building in the States for a while. And then the thing that I find fascinating in the UK is the unions like UVW and IWGB that started with outsourced workers at offices, right? The sort of cleaning workers and security workers and people who would be outsourced by the main company to a third party. But then they moved into gig workers, so Uber drivers, and that's who, you know, placed that or fought that legal case that was just decided by the British Supreme Court this week. Now they're branching into more white collar workers. So the video games workers that I profile in the book are also part of IWGB. I think both UBW and IWGB have charity workers branches now. So that is much more white collar work. So people are sort of moving into these things and thinking, like, how do we get involved with this. The university and college union right now is having a bunch of fights over reopening and precarity in academia. So we are sort of seeing a move by the laborers of love in a variety of ways back into unions, but trying to think about how we can make those unions functional for 2021. Because the old model of the factory union just isn't going to cut it because we don't work in factories anymore. That's not what it looks like. You know, the union at Google has to do something very different than a union at the Ford River Rouge plant. It's a real challenge, which is why I sort of had fun with finding workers in these chapters who had gotten involved in different kinds of organizing. So, you know, the artist that I spoke with that I profiled, Kate O'Shea, who is just wonderful. Kate is from Ireland. And she is, of course, like very solo. She works in a studio all day long. But she has this whole group of people who sort of create collective spaces and collective projects and work on sort of organizing artists to think about and work on their conditions as artists and how to improve the arts in all sorts of ways, from making them more accessible to marginalized communities to just improving pay rates and making sure that people get paid. So it's hard. I I wish I had all the solutions. I would be writing a much more cheerful book and we'd have had a much more cheerful (laughs) conversation. But I do think that the thing that, that has been really heartening to me as a journalist who mostly writes about work for the last 10 years is watching people experiment and come up with innovative ways to have power. And things like that Uber decision are a really big deal and does potentially have impacts for other freelance workers. No, totally. I I was I was really pleased when I saw it the other week, just because I felt, I mean, something that I was really conscious of when the pandemic kicked in was the fact that Uber drivers, which is a service that I 
rely on probably much more than I should. I was very aware that they had no protections. You know, I listened to a couple of radio interviews and it suddenly made me realise how there is a huge swathe of workers who were just completely unprotected by any kind of labour laws. And so I just kind of felt like, okay, that is a win for all of us. It's a small incremental gain. It doesn't necessarily affect me directly. I'm not an Uber driver, but I did think that is a great precedent to be set. Maybe it's something that in the US, you know, the people in California can kind of look at our ruling and maybe try and... I know it's a kind of very different political climate, but it still did just feel like the smallest bit of progress. So Yeah, no, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. I'm really pleased with it. And I, yeah, I absolutely think that it gives people here a way to look at and talk about this work and to understand, again, like how it does have things in common with our work and with the work of a whole lot of workers in this economy, even if we are not all Uber drivers. Mm, Exactly. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I cannot wait for everyone else to read your book. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegi That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. Thank you once again to our episode sponsor, Aurelia Skincare. Don't forget, you can get 20% off all the products on their website, even the ones that are already discounted, by using the code IDC20 at www.aureliaskincare.com. Do be sure to check them out.